The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. All right, well, go ahead and turn to uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, actually chapter 12. First Corinthians chapter 12. Verse 31. But earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I show you a still more excellent way. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor and I surrender or give my body in order that I may boast, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Well, we come to 1 Corinthians 13, which is really just one of the the stunning passages in the New Testament. A number of quotations here, they're, they're all so good. Gordon Fee says, This is one of the greatly loved passages in the New Testament, and for good reason. It is one of Paul's finest moments. Indeed, let the interpreter beware, lest too much analysis detracts from its sheer beauty and power. Charles Hodge, the old Princeton theologian, for moral elevation for richness and comprehensiveness, for beauty and felicity of expression. It has been the admiration of the church in all ages. Don Carson, the chapter is a masterpiece, even when it's cut loose from its literary context. In other words, it's okay to use it at weddings. (laughs) So Jonathan Edwards, my hero, preached a series of sermons on 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's called Charity and Its Fruits. And he preached it in 1738, which actually ends up being significant because if you remember... 1734 to 36, there was an incredible awakening in the Connecticut River Valley. And then the Great Awakening happens in 1740 to 43. And Edwards preaches this series of sermons, Charity and Its Fruits, in between those two revivals. And in a real sense, what Edwards does in his treatment of 1 Corinthians 13 is he gives a systematic treatment of the Christian moral life using 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So the passage itself is profound. It is uh, monumental. I love Fee's comment. This is one of Paul's finest moments. Uh, From time to time, you might hear that that perhaps it was a hymn or a poem, but I actually think that if you, if you study it carefully and see the way that it fits between 12 and 14, that this is most certainly a, a, a Pauline composition that is designed for the Corinthians. In other words, Paul writes this for the Corinthians and for the Corinthian situation. Now, as we, as we go through this passage, and I don't really know how long it'll take us, but We're not going to forget the broader context. We're not going to forget that it fits between 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. In fact, I will remind you of that repeatedly. And we're going to see how it functions even tonight. But 
the fact is, is that we will also be focusing repeatedly on the most basic truth of this text. The most basic truth of what it means to follow Jesus. And that is, and the greatest of these is love. It is amazing to me how often we can forget that, right? Especially, especially people who, who really like theology. Sometimes people that really like theology don't get very good at loving, they get very good at arguing. Um, Jesus doesn't say, you know, in my kingdom, you kind of have doctrine people, and then you kind of have love people. You don't get to pick. You need to be doctrinally sound, but you need to demonstrate love, right? In fact, Jesus tells his disciples that by this, all men will know that you're my disciples because you love one another, right? And so love, as Francis Schaeffer reminded us 40 years ago, love is the mark of the Christian, all right? Well, that means we should study love, learn love, apply love, and then relearn love, and then reapply love, like over and over and over again. I, w- I was thinking about this earlier. Maybe this is unnecessary, so let me just see by show of hands how many of you have mastered love. Okay, I think we're in good shape, then we'll press on. Now, so uh, verse 31, we kind of ended there last week, and... Um, Paul says in verse 31 of chapter 12, um, earnestly desire the greater gifts. And you might remember I said that um, this could either be an indicative statement, that is you earnestly desire the greater gifts, or it could be a command to earnestly desire the greater gifts. We talked about this last week. I think that Paul's actually giving a command to earnestly desire the greater gifts. I don't think that that is contrary to the whole tenor of 1 Corinthians 12. Although at first it sounds a little bit like it because Paul hasn't been emphasizing spiritual gifts. He's been emphasizing unity. He's been emphasizing equality. He's been emphasizing the fact that one gift doesn't make you better than somebody else. But he closes this by saying we should earnestly desire the greater gifts. And what that is going to mean is that for us in the body of Christ, we should earnestly desire gifts that edify the body. Those are the greater gifts. The gifts that edify, the gifts that build up, the gifts that are for the common good. Okay, And so... For Paul, one of the things that is, is, is important is that as he gets into 1 Corinthians 13, is he's going to be showing the Corinthians really that to be a loving person is to be a person who is pursuing the edification of the body and the upbuilding of the body and the good of the body, not just simply putting their gifts on display. That's, that's utter selfishness, that's utter carnality, that is absolutely contrary to the work of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul says, uh, so earnestly desire, earnestly seek after the greater gifts, and, uh, and then he says, but still I show you still a more excellent way. And, of course, that excellent way is going to be the way of love. And so love is what's going to motivate the use of the gifts. And and, and this is something we'll come back to again and again, and that is love will never compel me to put my gifts on display in order to exalt myself. 
Love will always compel me to do what I do for the good of my brothers and sisters. Now, as we come to uh, this, this chapter, it is, it is somewhat of an interruption. Okay? It is a divinely inspired rabbit trail. Okay? Now, it's not a rabbit trail like maybe I might go on a rabbit trail. This is a rabbit trail that serves chapter 12 and chapter 14. All right? So it's an inspired rabbit trail. My rabbit trails are hardly inspired, all right? They may be entertaining. They may be even from time to time, once in a great while, helpful, but they're hardly inspired. Paul goes on a rabbit trail inspired. How do I know it's a rabbit trail? Well, look at, uh, look at chapter 12, verse 31. Earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I show you still a more excellent way Now flip over to chapter 14, verse 1. Pursue love, yet earnestly desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. So actually, you could take chapter 13 right out, and 12 to 14 would actually flow seamlessly. All right? But Paul is not going to do that that quickly. He's not going to say, pursue the greater gifts, and I'm going to tell you why prophecy is better than tongues, and just go into that. Instead, he's going to do this sanctified rabbit trail, which then ends up showing how the uh, way of love is the superior way. Because before he ever gets into the details of the gifts that they're so eager to talk about, he's going to show them the better way, which is the way of love. Now, a few things about love. First of all, love, love is not the greater gift, all right? Some people, especially some of the older commentators, Read 1 Corinthians 13 as if Paul is saying that love is the greater gift that you should pursue. And although that's a nice thought, it's not what Paul's saying, okay? So love is not presented as a spiritual gift, but love is the way to exercise spiritual gifts. It's the superior way. It's the more excellent way. Now... um, Think about uh, the Corinthians for a second. Here they are. Um, they're pursuing gifts, and they're pursuing gifts in a way that are, what, you tell me, constructive or destructive? Absolutely destructive, all right? Bad for the body, right? Because what is, what is um, motivating them is not doing good to the body, what's motivating them is pride, putting themselves on display, putting themselves up front. And so Paul is now going to show them a better way, right? This is, this is really, in a sense, a powerful thing because it's the way of edification. It's the way of common good. It is the way, really, where the Spirit of God is most marvelously at work and put on display. You really want to see a spirit-filled church. I think, I think Paul could, uh, could, could say something like this. You really want to see a spirit-filled church. It's not in the display of gifts. It's in the display of love. That's where the spirit is really at work. When you get people that are loving each other, serving each other, seeking each other's common good, and doing it out of a heart of love to God and love to one another, there the Spirit of God is. So many times we we think of um, the display of the Spirit and think only in terms of what's impressive or what's powerful. And yet what we forget is that the real power is not in somebody's ability to do something. The real power 
is seen when we love each other. Years ago, this is one of those sanctified rabbit trails. Years ago, I was a young teenager watching um, a tele-evangelist. And ben, this guy could preach. This guy could preach. And I sat there every week. We had a, we had a, a, a VCR. They were brand new. They were like this big. Okay, and I would tape this this guy's program, and I would watch. I'd watch it two, three, sometimes four times in the course of a week. I just mesmerized by his preaching. And this guy was eloquent. He was he was powerful. And my dad says to me one night, "So my, you know, my dad worked at UPS. Of course, they're Teamsters, right? So keep that in mind." My dad says, why do you like him so much? I said, he is so filled with the Holy Spirit. He says, how do you know that? He says, just listen to him preach. He says, every year at uh, contract time, I can go down and hear half a dozen guys for the Teamsters give just as rousing a speech. He said, Brian, those guys are a dime a dozen. And of course, this particular tele-evangelist ends up disgracing himself not once but twice, demonstrating that the power of the Holy Spirit may have been in his preaching, but it certainly wasn't in sanctification. Great displays of gifts are not necessarily great displays of grace. It is when the Spirit of God... See, we should should be so much more impressed with the fruit of the Spirit than the gifts of the Spirit. Now, Paul is not setting up uh, love versus gifts. Forget gifts. Just do What he's saying is the gifts are important. The gifts are, are, are vital for the health of the body. But listen, let love be the context of every gift that is, that is operated. Okay? Every gift that functions, let it be in the context. Let it be motivated by love. Let it be permeated by love. Let the purpose be love. Well, that brings us to the uh, uh, introduction to 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, The chapter falls into three parts, quite nicely, actually. The first is verses 1 through 3, which we read, which we could call the, the necessity of Christian love. All right? We'll look at that tonight. Then 4 to 7, which is probably the most famous part, is the character or the description of Christian love. Now, there is, there is one thing that, that you should know, that when you see these descriptions, love is patient, love is kind, so forth, in, in, in our English Bibles, we translate 4 to 7, as we describe love, we, dis, uh, we, we translate it with, with adjectives. Okay? Love is patient. Love is kind. What you have to understand is that in the Greek text, every descriptive word for love is a verb. It's not an adjective. Love endures. Love does kindness. Okay, that, that we'll, we'll see this in detail, but this is so. So understand that Paul's not just giving us something that you can put on a plaque or your, you know, doormat or something, but rather what he's doing is he's showing us that that love is something that is is an action. Okay, love does stuff. All right, love does stuff. 
If you don't remember anything else tonight, just take that home. Love does stuff, all right? Um, And then the last part, uh, 13, uh, 8 to 13, is the permanence of Christian love. This, of course, is the famous part where Paul begins to talk about love never failing and then concludes the greatest of these is love, all right? Okay, so we get to this, this opening paragraph 13, 1 to 3. And um, we've already noted Paul's demonstrating Christian love is the more excellent way. And so here are these Corinthians filled with pride, so selfish, just self-promoters. Um, <laughs> every once in a while, I drive by a, a, like a church sign, and, uh, and, and it's just a big picture of the pastor. You ever, <laughs> you ever see these church signs, right? And... Um, when we lived in Portland, there was this there was this gigantic billboard, and uh, it had this the pastor's picture on it, of course, and uh, and his <laughs> his name was Pastor Huck, and um, <laughs> I always wondered if that was his first name and his last name was Stir, but um, <laughs> anyway. Love is, is absolutely contrary to this self-promotion, right? And so here's the Corinthians, and, and the Corinthians, if they would have had little, um, little postcards to invite people to church, you know, hey, come to the First Baptist Church of Corinth, they would have had their own picture on the front, okay? This is the Corinthians. And so here they were, and they, they loved their gifts, but they loved the gifts that caused them to be seen. And so um, <laughs> one, of my, one of my weaknesses is that I can't pass up um, bad church YouTube videos. All right? So I saw one today. It was absolutely hilarious. There's this, there's this big choir, and there's this pastor. He's African-American pastor, and obviously African-American church. And he gets up, and he says, all right, choir, let's get started. And, and uh, before they could even sing, he turns around and he says, but not you. Don't you start off. You can't sing. I thought it was great. Anyway... <laughs> He says, you always start off. I don't understand why you always start off. You can't sing. Somebody else want to start off? Well, guess what? No volunteers, okay? But you know what he was pointing out? There was one person that always loved starting off the song, right? Sometimes that just happens in church, you know what I mean? Now, thankfully, not in our church. Never mind. <laughs> yeah, I should have thought of that before I made that comment. But, but there's just this idea of just always just, you know, setting yourself forward, being the first one, being the one that does, you know, and, and, and this was the Corinthians. Some of us have been in charismatic churches where it was the same people standing up every week giving whatever, Right? their word of knowledge, their revelation, their prophecy, their tongue, whatever, right? It was the same people week after week after week. That's, that's Corinthian, right? Self-promotion, self-centeredness. And so here's the Corinthian church, and they see their spirituality in these, in these triumphalistic terms. And what Paul wants to show them is, look, there is such a, a greater way of doing things than your carnal, superficial, self-centered, self-promoting way. It's worldliness. And so love is that more excellent way. Love is ultimately more important than gifts. I mean, just think about it for half a second. There you are in the body of Christ. What would you rather have? Be surrounded by people that you know love you with their whole heart. 
or people that are just really good at stuff. Now, thankfully, you don't have to pick, right? Thankfully, it's not like, well, the people that are really loving aren't good at anything, okay? Thankfully, that's not the dichotomy that we have to live with. Um, But let's face it, having somebody near you who loves you and has your best interest at heart is just profoundly more important than any gift they can they can do for you. So Paul begins with four hypothetical statements, all right? And um, you have to you have to admit as Paul goes through this and he gives these four hypotheticals he is, he's, he is really, he's scratching where the Corinthians would have itched, right? Gifts and glory and tongues of angels and moving mountains. Hallelujah. <laughs> the Corinthians, you just imagine, they're just getting all frothy and worked up. Okay? But what he's doing is brilliant. There's a there's this masterful development where he is he's building this uh, this 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 escalation, if you will, with each conditional statement, and he goes. This this is the way that he that he escalates it. He starts with something that they would have been familiar with, something ordinary. Then he takes it to this extraordinary level that goes beyond anything they could have imagined so that they would just be starstruck with the idea. Okay? And what he does is in the process, as he takes them from the ordinary to the extraordinary, He then shocks them each time. But if I don't have love. Frankly, they, they really probably could not have cared less about whether they had love. If they had these other things, that's what mattered to them. They were all into the power. They were all into the pride. They were all into the, the encounter. And, and Paul says, you know what? You can have all that. You don't have love. You're, you are a big, fat zero. So he begins, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. You know what's interesting is he's given us two lists of spiritual gifts in chapter 12. Where does tongues come in in both of those lists? Last. Now. Tongues come first. You could imagine, there's the Corinthians, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, they're like, nah, hot dog, now, Paul, we're really getting to something. Woo, can't wait to hear this. And this is the way he's going to develop each of these arguments. If I do this or that and do not have love, then this is the truth about me. So if I speak with the tongues of men, right? So this is their favorite gift, gift of tongues, uh, languages. And uh, if I speak with the tongues of men, me, me, I do, Paul. I do, I do. Good, keep that hand up, Paul would say. <laughs> you keep that hand up just for just like three more minutes. And the tongues of angels. Ooh. What language do angels speak? Well, it depends on who they're talking to. 
So Gabriel's probably speaking Aramaic when he speaks to the Virgin Mary. Michael was probably speaking Hebrew as he spoke to Daniel. But that's not what Paul's talking about. The idea of the tongues of angels is, let's just say, for the time being, the idea of a heavenly language. Now, there's, there's really, there's two, sort of two ideas on what Paul could be talking about here with tongues of angels. Uh, the first would be uh, angelic tongues would be a heavenly language. And so this, this view that actually thinks that, that maybe it was a real thing or that the Corinthians thought it was a real thing goes something like this. So in the Corinthians mind, the, the highest form of tongue speaking, the highest plane of spirituality would be to be like the angels, speak like the angels. Now, do we have any indication in the letter so far that there were people that sort of aspired to the angelic plane? The answer is yes. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul's dealing with people that thought that they shouldn't marry or that if they were married, they shouldn't have relations within marriage in all likelihood because of some sort of super spiritualized view of being like the angels. It's very possible that some super spiritualized view of being like the angels is also what drives 1 Corinthians 15, so that Paul has to talk about a bodily resurrection. And so there, there is a theory that basically says that, that they had so exalted angels believe, believing that they were so spiritual that they were living, uh, in a sense, an angelic existence. So to speak with the tongues of angels would be like, that's the highest of the form of speaking in tongues. Possible. But I think tongues of angels is just hyperbole. In other words, it's, it's the escalation. He moves from the dialect of earth, if you will, to the elevated dialect of heaven. Uh, it would be superlative hyperbole, right? How, how do I know that? Well, I don't know it for sure, but I, I, I feel fairly confident that it's hyperbole because he uses hyperbole in the next two uh, conditional clauses. Okay. Starts with prophecy and then goes to all mysteries, all knowledge, all faith, right? Well, nobody has all mis- all knowledge and all faith, right? So it's, it's hyperbole, right? So I think that that's what Paul's talking about, but he most definitely has the Corinthians' attention. Tongues of angels, whoo! But do not have love. Then he says this, I have become a sounding brass and a clanging cymbal. Okay? Now, in the, the Greek text is emphatic. So if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but love I do not have. So for Paul, you have to understand, when he says this, he's speaking about Christian love. All right? He's not talking about natural affection. He's talking about Christian love. And for Paul, Christian love Christian love is, is profoundly rooted in Christ. Okay? So for Paul, um, love is supremely demonstrated by God in Christ, 
right? God demonstrates his own love for us in this, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so for Paul, there is this, there is this supernatural display of love by the Father and the Son, and it is that display of love which, which is the supreme demonstration of love. It is the supreme act of love. There is no greater act of love than the Father giving the Son. There's no greater act of love than the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So for Paul, the love that, 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 that comes really from the Father and the Son supremely demonstrated in the cross is the, is the same love that is then communicated to the believer when they're born again. So he says, uh, but hope does not disappoint for the love of God has been poured, has been gushed out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So, so for Paul, Christian love is a supernatural thing. It is something that the Spirit of God, as it were, so you, so you really sort of have a Trinitarian perspective of, of love, and it's the Spirit of God that actually takes the very love of God and the love of Christ, pours it out in our hearts, transforms us. So that now, the primary demonstration that the Spirit of God is at work in my life is this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. Now, for Paul, love is what empowers us to put others above ourselves. Love is what empowers us. Um, to serve others in a way that our faith is being demonstrated, right? Circumcision, uncircumcision doesn't matter. Faith working through love. For Paul, faith has a heartbeat. And the heartbeat is love. And so to have faith in Christ, for for Paul, uh, saving faith is faith that loves. But for Paul, love is also the fulfillment of the law. So how does the Christian fulfill the law? He does it in the power of the Spirit. How? By loving his neighbor. Romans 13, 8 to 10. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. When I love, when I love God, By the Spirit, I fulfill the first table of the law. And then the second table, which is like the first, right? First great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second, which is like it. Which is like it. You shall love your neighbor as Yourself. And so love is the fulfillment of the law. So for Paul, the Christian love is, 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 is what, it's the miracle of Christianity. It's the miracle of Christianity because I take this heart that doesn't come into this world loving God. I come into this world, right? So what's my disposition towards God naturally? Am I looking for God? 
Told you once, I've told you a thousand times, you know more come into this world looking for God than a thief goes looking for a cop. God transforms that heart. Now I desire him, I love him, I want him. But God also does something this way too. So that now this, 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 Self-centered, right? So we sing it, right? We're going to sing it, I think, this coming Sunday. Uh, In my heart, there is a treason, one that poisons all my loves. The transformation that takes place is that God now gives me a heart to love him and to love others. That's the miracle of the new birth. And so Paul's conclusion is this. If I have the the highest, the greatest, the most spectacular gifts of tongues, but I don't have love, then I have become, this is funny, uh, NAS, uh, a noisy gong. Is that what New American Standard says? A noisy gong. A sounding gong. This doesn't work for me. Okay. First of all, it's actually not reflective of the of of the Greek phrase, and I'll tell you why in a second. But you know what I think of when I hear noisy gong? Yeah, Chuck Chuck Barris, yeah, the gong show. Yeah. You're right, actually. I mean, I know you were going out on a limb there, but you're right. I, it, it just, the noisy gong just sounds like bong, bong. It's not the idea. The word that Paul uses is an acoustic vase. An acoustic jar. Okay. It's not a gong like in like a Chinese gong. It is something that you would use to amplify sound. Okay. Paul's point is this. Anthony Thistleton puts it like this. He says, Without love I become nothing more than an empty sound coming out of a hollow, lifeless vessel. It's loud, but it's empty. By the way, that's actually more significant than I just sound like somebody banging on a Chinese gong. This loud noisy sound coming from an empty vessel. Now the next, everybody can relate to. A clanging cymbal. Don't think of the London Philharmonic and the guy over there on the cymbal that just at exactly the right time, at exactly the right note, Think of giving symbols to um, three-year-old twins. <laughs> That's what we're talking about. So this torturous, non-melodic crashing sound, right? Now, here's the amazing thing. People that sing or play instruments all think that they can sing and play an instrument. So the other day I was singing, if I, if I wouldn't have become a pastor, I'd have become a sniper. If I wouldn't have been a sniper, I'd have been a country music singer. No. Uh, <laughs> so I'm singing this song, and I've sing, sung this song for all my life. And... 
I told Ariel, I said, you know, I could have been a country music singer. <laughs> she looks at me. So I start singing. Then all of a sudden, I realize that it doesn't actually sound quite the same when I'm singing by myself. <laughs> you ever notice that? You know, it sounds so good when, you know, when you got Merle Haggard singing along with you. Start singing it by yourself, it's like, oh, it's not very good. Or the person that says, hey, I'm really, really good at this instrument. Let me play. Great. Yikes. <laughs> right? So here's... Here's the here's the tongue here's the tongue speaker crashing non melodic cacophony. Paul says, "You don't have love. That's what you sound like: empty, meaningless noise. Not just empty, meaningless noise. I would add annoying noise." You ever just hear things drive you crazy? Yeah, so I have a disease. I've told you about it before. It's called misophonia, all right? It's actually, it's a real thing. I saw it on the internet. <laughs> so <laughs> so it's, it's, you get this, uh, uh, this, this deep sense of irritability with certain noises. So, like, when my kids were little, you know, them chewing food. I look at Zach. Quit chewing your food. Just swallow it. <laughs> okay? <laughs> so, it's driving me crazy. Now, of course, he's afflicted with it, and he's like, Dad, chew with your mouth shut. <laughs> Whatever you say. Or you hear, uh, this is the one that really kills me. Somebody messing with their water bottle, okay? Oh, man. I seriously could just be completely unsanctified and shove that plastic water bottle just down somebody's throat, okay? That wasn't very nice. Anyway... (laughs) But it's just these noises, they just, right? So we have, a, we have a, a figure of speech, nails on a chalkboard, right? Just, ah! Paul says, that's what your tongues are like if you don't have love. You're just nails on a chalkboard. You're just crinkling water bottle, okay? <clears throat> I'm still scarred from the guy that sat in the front row for years and would clip his fingernails while he was preaching. Nanette couldn't stand him because she had to clean it up. But I couldn't stand him because I was like. <laughs> anyway, I'll press on. <laughs> so here Paul just basically saying, you, you don't know, actually, if, if you have no love, you don't know how bad you sound. You don't know how rotten those tongues are if you don't. Have love. So the gift that's mentioned last is the very gift which Paul has minimized to this point, and it's the very gift that he now leads with, and he sets forth this this perspective that even the most gifted tongue talker in the world, even the one talking the language of heaven, if you don't have love, you're just making noise. Yeah, noises like that, Julie. <laughs> yeah, great. Now, verse 2. Notice what he does. If I have, notice it's just if I have prophecy, he's obviously talking about if I have the gift of prophecy. So this spirit-inspired 
proclamation, which, of course, they would have been familiar with in the Corinthian assembly. We're going to see Paul lays out rules in 1 Corinthians 14. And he says, so if I have the gift of prophecy, that's ordinary. Then he goes to escalate, right? And I know all mysteries and all knowledge. Mysteries and knowledge, revelation that comes through God's spirit. Mysteries, um, maybe even the idea of, 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 of God's uh, future or eschatological mysteries, his future plans, knowledge, God's revelation, whether it's through his word or supernatural. And so here you get this climactic es- escalation. Why? Well, nobody knows all mysteries and has all knowledge. Nobody. Period. So if I have prophecy, or even if I just know all of God's mysteries and have all of God's knowledge, and then he throws in another one. And if I have, notice his language, all faith, so as to move, notice, not just a mountain. You see what it is, right? Move mountains. You think he's appealing at this point to Jesus' words of Matthew or Mark uh, 11, 23, 24. Faith of a mustard seed, say to this mountain, be plucked up, cast into the sea, it shall be done according to your faith. Right? So the idea is, <laughs> this isn't just, the, this isn't just the, the, the kind of faith that can move a mountain. This is all faith that can move entire mountain ranges. Who has that kind of faith? Well, the answer is actually nobody. If I have all possible faith. So think about it it like this. So Paul's saying, so if I could preach better than Whitfield and Spurgeon, and if I knew more theology than Calvin and Owen and Edwards combined, and if I had the faith of George Mueller and William Carey, But have not love. I am nothing. You know what's important here? Paul says, listen, the ability to prophesy, to be able to know revelation and to have all faith and yet to be lacking in the most basic Christian grace of love is an indictment on your personhood. He doesn't simply say, it profits me nothing. He says, I am. Nothing. He's not saying merely, I'm useless. He's saying, I'm nothing. You know, we live in a culture where you say something like that, somebody's going to say, I perceive you've you've got a problem with self-esteem. Paul says, no. I just understand that no matter what gifts I might have, if I don't have love, I'm just a zero. Nothing. Nothing. Gordon Fee makes a comment here. He says, if one person could embrace the whole range of the charismata, that is all the spiritual gifts, and the full measure of any one of them, but at the same time would fail to be full of love, such a person would be nothing 
in the sight of God. Why? Love, as we've already noted, is the ordinary work of the Spirit of God in ordinary Christians. It's the most basic of the Christian graces. It's the very mark of being a disciple of Jesus. And so to have extraordinary gifts and yet be lacking in the most fundamental of graces equals zero. Love among God's people is the sign that God's among his people. Loving God's people for the sake of Christ is the sign that you love Christ. And Paul says that that's not there. Without love, we're just noisy, empty vessels. Without love, we're just nothing. You know that I am in complete favor, 110% favor of learning as much theology as you possibly can learn, learn as much of the Bible as you can possibly learn, grow in as much knowledge as you can possibly grow in. But if you do that in a way where you don't have love or you're not growing in love, all of that knowledge and all of that theology and all of that training and all of just will weigh us down in the day of judgment. In other words, it is far better to have the true love of Christ in our hearts one for another than to be able to say, I've read all 16 volumes of the works of John Owen. I've read all 74 volumes of the works of Jonathan Edwards. I've preached on every continent in the world. None of it means anything if we don't have love. How we treat each other, what we think of each other, and how we love each other is the demonstration that the Spirit of the living God has taken up residence in this temple. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for this sobering text. We pray that you'd help us. Help us, Father, where we've valued other things more than love. Help us, Father, where we have treated others from a posture of pride or superiority. And there has been nothing of the aroma of Christ about us. Forgive us. Forgive us, we pray. And help us. We pray that you would fix our eyes on Christ, whose love incarnate. Father, as we, as we marinate in the love of Christ for us, may that love overflow to others. Father, especially the ones that we have a hard time loving. 
Lord, help us to see that, that there are no exceptions to this rule. Not to love means we're nothing. And so help us. Help us. We look to you tonight as our only hope to be the loving people that you call us to be. In Christ's name, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.